Thank you for joining us today to talk about the patient's journey through renal cell carcinoma and identifying their needs as it relates to the coordination of care between urologists and medical oncologists. My name is Dr. William Hong. I'm a urologic oncologist at NYU Langone Medical Center and the Perlmutter Cancer Center. And I am pleased to be your moderator for these series of interesting discussions. I'd like to introduce my three guests tonight. First, Dina Battle, president of KC Cure, a patient advocacy group. Uh, next is Dr. Sumanta Paul, otherwise known as Monty. Uh, he is the associate professor and co-director of the Kidney Cancer Program at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. And finally, Dr. Viraj Master, professor and director of the clinical research unit, Department of Urology, Emory University. Welcome. So, Dina, can we begin by first uh, having you tell us a little bit about uh, KC Cure and its mission and your personal story behind, behind this organization? Sure. So, KC Cure is a grassroots organization of patients and doctors that are all dedicated together towards increasing research in kidney cancer. Um, we do that in two primary ways. One way is we have a peer-reviewed research grant program where we provide direct seed funding for research in kidney cancer. And we also do our own patient-centered research um, through surveying and talking with patients and doing outreach. We really talk to patients to determine what their needs are and um, how we can improve treatment for them by, by getting that direct feedback. Um, and so tell us, how did you get involved with this? And you know, you have a personal history with kidney cancer. I do. Yeah, so um, my husband was diagnosed with kidney cancer uh, when he was 40 years old. And it was, like most patients, it was just, he went to an emergency room thinking it was appendicitis. And right there, they said, nope, this is renal cell carcinoma. Um, initially, uh, they thought that it was contained. Um, he had surgery, he had a radical nephrectomy, and they said, you're clear, um, you really don't need to worry. Um, we went ahead and got a second opinion because we felt like we should get a CT scan, and they found metastatic disease in his lungs at that point. Um, that was about nine months after his nephrectomy. Um, and we, obviously it was, it was devastating, a horrible experience, but um, together we banded together and just really fought to find the best treatment that we could. We ended up going to four different comprehensive cancer centers. We did multiple clinical trials. And um, Chris lost his battle to kidney cancer at 45, but through that process, we learned so much about, about the healthcare system and about battling cancer. And I really felt like I wanted to give back and to continue working with the patient community. Um, and I actually, I co-founded Casey Cure with Dr. Hans Hammers, who was the oncologist who treated Chris when he was battling cancer. So it's a very special story to me of how we came together. Uh, and I, one thing that I love about us as an organization is just that partnership between physicians and patients coming together to fight this disease. So as the leader of this patient advocacy group and other groups as well, uh, can you share with us sort of the needs uh, that we need to fulfill for patients as healthcare providers as they go through the journey from the beginning at the time of diagnosis perhaps to if they need additional treatment, a follow-up, et cetera? Sure. You know, one thing we see a lot with patients, especially patients with localized disease, is it's really unclear 
who should be doing their treatment. Um, some are followed by urologists, some are followed by oncologists, some are followed by primary care doctors. Uh, we did a survey of patients uh, last year. We had over 450 responses, and we found it was really all over the map how they were getting their treatment. We also found that a lot of patients weren't aware of what their pathology was. Um, they really weren't sure what their level of risk was. Um, in terms of surveillance scanning, it was all over the map. You know, we saw a lot of patients who were getting PET scans, which really aren't indicated for RCC. Um, so there's really a need. We really identified some significant needs of um, trying to standardize and make sure that patients are getting the right care um, and educating them so that they can really be engaged and empowered as they make treatment decisions. Great, thank you. Um, doctors Master and Paul, what are your thoughts on this and uh, what are your feelings about how you educate your own patients and how they navigate uh, through their uh, kidney cancer diagnosis uh, after, after meeting you? And, We'll start with Dr. Master, because usually it's the urologist who makes the diagnosis, correct? Right. Often, yes. And, you know, I have the luxury of practicing in an academic medical center, just like yourself, Dr. Huang. And so I have ready access to colleagues in medical oncology, really at the drop of a hat, to discuss complex or unusual cases with. The reality is that 95% of kidney cancer care is provided to patients in the private sector, and those resources may not be available to the urologist, and most importantly to the patient and their family to understand things like risk stratification, understanding what their diagnosis means, and even how they should be evaluated at the time of finding a kidney mass. Should they have a CT scan? Mm -hmm of their chest, is there other imaging that should be done? If they're complaining of atypical bone pain, what should other strategies be? So I think it's an area of incredibly important need for urologists and medical oncologists to be highly communicative with one another and make sure that the patient and their family know that there's some conversations happening. Would it be fair to say, uh, over the recent time period, there's been a greater dialogue between urologists and medical oncologists, or do you feel that uh, it, it's still, there's a, a separation? For instance, do most of the patients who see you, Dr. Paul, do they seek you out independently, or are they referred to you uh, by a urologist who's taking care of them? You know, I would say it's probably a 50-50 mix in my practice, direct referrals from urologists versus folks who are coming to see me independently for a, an opinion. But to your point, I really do feel that now more than ever before, there's rationale for both medical oncologists and urologists to participate in patient care. Adjuvant therapy, post-operative therapy, which is something we really didn't talk about when I got into the field, is now a reality. Uh, and these are important conversations that probably require both of us at the table. So, Dr. Powell, in our earlier discussion, we had talked about the different roles between the urologists and oncologists, and perhaps, as we mentioned, they're now sort of being merged and we're working more closely together. Um, how would you say, though, these differences in how we're approaching patient care has altered uh, the coordination of care and the outcomes of patients that we take care of now? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that an early segue and an immediate segue into a medical oncologist clinic is very helpful uh, in the sense that we can oftentimes get patients 
perhaps the, uh, the best access and the most ready access to clinical trials. Uh, oftentimes, if there's a lag period of three months, four months, five months, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, between the referral to the medical oncologist and that initial consultation with the urologist, we've exhausted the window for many research studies, and, and that's a real shame. And are there any glaring areas of improvement that you can see right off the bat that we could definitely make, uh, make changes in? I think that multidisciplinary clinics, which are emerging in all of our centers, where you know patients diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma immediately have access to, to both of our specialties, I feel like that's really the wave of the future, and that's really going to provide patients, uh, to Dina's point earlier, um, access to both relevant resources. I also really think, um, Dr. Huang, and I'm not sure whether this is true in your own center or not, it can sometimes provide tremendous reassurance to the patient if you have a low-grade, non-aggressive histology kidney cancer that is fully resected. It's wonderful for patients and family members to know that the overwhelming data supports the fact that you're cured just as much as if you have a high-stage, very aggressive histology disease for the patient and their family members to know, hey, this is all hands on deck. We are going to find multiple trials for you and you're going to be under the care of multiple physicians to make sure that we're not leaving any stone unturned. So on the one hand, we might allay risk in patients who their risk is mitigated. And on the other hand, we can be very vigilant about patients who are at high risk. Yeah, I would really echo that point. We found anxiety rates in patients were extremely high in renal cell patients across stage. Regardless of stage, they were all high. And I think that providing a team reassures patients, whether they're a T1A tumor or whether they're a patient facing metastatic disease, they want to feel like everyone is all hands on deck, regardless of their stage. And I think when, um, when patients can be a part of a multidisciplinary clinic and they can meet with people and hear all that data and really be educated, I think it does reassure them and helps deal with that anxiety that cancer patients face. So Dina, what is KC Cure advocating for? So we're advocating for um, multidisciplinary clinics. We want patients to not have to know who is on their team and who, who is working with them and for them. Um, better guidelines, um, more standardized surveillance guidelines. We have a lot of different guidelines out there, both mm -hmm. for surveillance follow-up. Um, it's really unclear. Risk stratification, we're still not really clear on which model we're going to use. Um, those type of things, more clarity so that patients can really have an understanding of their diagnosis. We would love to see something, and, and this is something that we're working on as an organization, but a standardized format that every patient who's diagnosed when they come out of surgery, that they know what their diagnosis is. They really have a patient-friendly version of their pathology so that they can identify what their risk is even as their doctor's telling it to them so it's a mutual understanding. Um, and a clear survivorship plan that says this is what your follow-up care is going to be regardless of what their stage is. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think, for instance, I, uh, at the University of Washington, I believe, for prostate cancer, for instance, they have a pathology report that's patient-friendly. Yes. So they're not just reading a Gleason score or a histologic subtype and doesn't mean anything to them. And I, I'm sure both of you feel the same way. Often, 
when you're meeting a patient for the first time and you review their films with them, they may not have any idea what you're pointing at when you're showing them their tumor on the screen. And so I found that patient aids, like having a, a model of a kidney or having some, some other supplemental information that's more in plain English is very helpful. But, uh, you know, I, there's definitely some shortcomings from, from our standpoint. I, for instance, surveillance for a PT1A tumor, uh, there is no real standard. I mean, there's a lot of disagreement. And I think that it's, uh, it's quite deceptive because the majority of PT1A tumors are cured. And right. so, you know, we can reliably tell them that you're going to be fine. Uh, and that you are cured, but there is a, a handful that we cannot. And I think that, uh, as you mentioned, it's important for the patient to understand where they fall into play and, and what their anticipated outcome is going to be. Right. You know, we have patients that come into our community, and so one doctor will say, you're cured, and another doctor is telling them, no, we're going to do surveillance scans every six months. And when they start talking to each other and comparing, they really start to question what their doctor told them and they start to lose confidence in the care that they're receiving. So if we can standardize and have, have things a little bit uniform, uniform, I think that would also help patients feel like, feel, have more confidence in the care. You're absolutely right. Currently, we have a number of well-respected authority figures in kidney cancer expertise who have completely divergent <laughs> opinions. And there is where I think as a medical community, we are super happy to be partnering with patient advocacy organizations because it's all about patients enrolling on registries, on trials, just like the breast cancer community widely embraced the principles of scientific inquiry 30 years ago. Right. So now we actually do have pathways of care mm -hmm. that are well studied and well elaborated. The amount of patients enrolling on kidney cancer trials, regretfully because of perhaps physician reluctance to refer patients to trials or perhaps because of other factors, it just isn't happening. So we don't have good enough data to tell patients exactly what they should be doing. Yeah. Well, and I do think, I think now that we see some of these multidisciplinary clinics forming and we see urologists and oncologists talking to each other more, I think that definitely will help to increase enrollment and accrual in clinical trials, um, especially in some of these adjuvant trials and neoadjuvant trials and looking at patients who have localized disease. I, my hope is that it will go a long way towards encouraging that. We certainly, as an, as an organization, encourage patients to seek out clinical trials as, as wherever in the treatment process that works for them. Um, there is a, a big misperception among patients that this is something that you should save for the last resort. We make it very clear to them that when a clinical trial works for you is when it works for you and engaging and looking for a clinical trial right at diagnosis is really crucial to getting access. I'm so glad to hear you say that. From our perspective, at least at my center, I'm highly encouraging patients to go online, particularly to social media platforms, and I'm so grateful to the fact that you actually have one, and say that please find a community that can help you ask better questions of me. Yeah. I always, I tell people, um, so my husband was the 15th patient to get MDX 1106, which is now Opdivo. And um, looking back now, that's, 
that's the first line treatment and combination for renal cell carcinoma. Um, and I think he was able to get that back in 2010. The fact that I can look back and say we had the opportunity to try that means I don't have to sit there and think, oh, what if? What if we would have had that? Um, knowing that he was able to get that therapy, it really means a lot to me. And so I tell patients that story to let them know, look, when you enroll in a clinical trial, you're getting tomorrow's therapy today. Yeah, no question about it. So, you know, uh, part of the focus of the series is to talk about adjuvant therapies, and you mentioned neoadjuvant adjuvant. So I think that's an excellent segue. Uh, so the landscape for the management of kidney cancer clearly has changed uh, over time, and quite recently, to be honest with you. Um, just prior to the FDA approval of a drug for the use in the adjuvant setting, you had to enroll in a clinical trial in order to uh, get the treatment. Um, can you comment on that at all, or, or, or t tell us how, you know, what, what, how patients feel when you tell them, okay, well, we have an experimental treatment or there's a clinical trial for you, uh, and, or tell them that they're not eligible for it or, or that they are not a good candidate for it. Absolutely. Well, I have to say that adjuvant consultation, Dean and I, we've had some conversations around this. It's a very lengthy one. There's a lot of data to discuss, um, mm -hmm. and maybe we can all take turns, you know, <laughs> expressing opinions on it. But, uh, you know, the trial, of course, that led to the FDA approval was ASTRAC, uh, which was a trial that randomized patients with high-risk localized disease to either sinitinib or placebo for a year, showed what I would interpret to be a, a modest gain in terms of disease-free survival. Uh, no benefit at this point in time in terms of overall survival. And the conflict that arises in my mind, and I do walk through this when I'm consult, uh, consulting with patients, is that we have other trials in the same space that have actually yielded negative results. We have PROTECT, which was a trial of pizopinib versus placebo. We have the ASSURE trial, uh, a U.S.-led study through the cooperative groups comparing sinitinib, serafinib, and placebo. So if I look at this, you know, perhaps uh, pendulum between offering adjuvant and not offering adjuvant, in my mind, with the weight of negative studies to date, it really doesn't favor that approach. Having said that, I've learned a lot from Dina about patients' perspectives on benefits of adjuvant treatment. And there are patients that I see in clinic who say at the end of the day that benefit and disease-free survival that's seen in that single trial is meaningful to me, and they may elect to receive the drug, and I fully respect that perspective. So, uh, it's, uh, for instance, in your own personal situation, uh, did you and your husband, you, you and your husband clearly had the resources to go out and seek additional help mm -hmm. to get additional consultations, but what advice can you give us as providers to help those who have no, no one else guiding them or no one else uh, no one behind them, you know, sort of directing them. Well, for us, I mean, in the adjuvant space, I can tell you, even though we we did have resources behind us, um, by the time we were able to get to a doctor where we might have been able to enroll in one of those adjuvant trials, mm -hmm. we had missed that window. I can tell you, from our perspective, though, we would have wanted it. Uh, we we were sort of devastated to learn right. that there was no adjuvant therapy available for Chris. So, and I think a lot of patients feel that way. Um, they want access to something. But to your point, not every patient is the right candidate. So I do think it's important that they have a really frank discussion with their doctor to determine whether it's right for them. Um, and in terms of those patients who don't have access, the patients who are in the community setting, um, 
it's really tough. As an organization, it's a huge part of our mission mm -hmm. is to reach out to patients who are being treated in a community center who might not know about clinical trials or might not know that they can get a second opinion. I recently referred a patient over to Dr. Powell um, who was being treated in a community setting and um, really hadn't been given a lot of information about his pathology. So encouraging folks to seek out a second opinion. Um, you know, you can get a second read on your pathology report even. You don't even have to change, you can stay with the same doctor, but encouraging um, patients to learn more about their disease um, so that um, so they can be making the right decisions going forward is one of the things that we do as an organization. Do you know, one thing that strikes me as really important, at least from where I sit, is healthcare literacy. And mm -hmm. sometimes patients are highly educated like you and Chris were with high degrees of understanding of sophisticated concepts, frankly, like the difference between overall survival, cancer-specific survival, disease-free survival. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are terms that um, are not easily recognizable to the vast right. majority of Americans who, in terms of healthcare literacy, um, my research and the research of other groups has shown that average American reads at the seventh grade level. So when you start mentioning complicated concepts, it's really hard. And I think the onus is on us as not only patient care organizations, but also physicians to be able to give patients some tools to understand what do these vocabulary words mean so that yeah. they can make effective decisions in their healthcare space? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's one of the things when I talked about this, uh, like a patient-friendly pathology report, um, putting something together that um, you're still going to have to use terms that they don't understand. You're still going to have to explain it to them. But you can put it in a format that makes it easier for them to see how it matters to them and how it impacts the treatment decisions that they need to make going forward. Um, you can have a checklist that says, this is your histology. You have a sarcomatoid dedifferentiation. You don't have to go so far into detail about that, but you can say, this is something that would indicate that you might be at a higher risk for recurrence. Um, instead, most patients, they get a really long, well, or a really short pathology report with a lot of terms, and they just sit there and try and look up a lot of those terms is really confusing to them. I'll give you an example. I was talking to a patient today. Um, her daughter has kidney cancer and she said, oh, she has transitional cell carcinoma. I said, is it, is it really more like a bladder cancer? Well, she had confused transitional cell with translocation. Oh, okay. Um, those are those are common things that we see among patients, um, and trying to iron those things out, trying to talk those through, it takes a lot of time to be honest. And I think we have to uh, we have to determine um, what's what's most important for patients to know, and not get too far down in the details. Um, make sure that we're teaching them and educating them about the things that they need to know so that they can be better partners in their treatment making decisions. Right. Or are there portals that can be trustworthy sources for patients to know? Because sometimes it seems to me no matter what I say in clinic, and I don't know about you, Dr. Huang, you might have a half hour discussion, but everyone is so petrified in the room by a diagnosis of cancer, they may not have remembered anything you've just said. Absolutely. I think there's, 
and I, I'm sure everyone would agree, there's probably really a lack of reliable resources for our patients. And I think that's why it's so important for organization like yours to provide them for our patients. But I think we probably need to do a better job of providing our own patients when we see them with reading material or links to, you know, reliable websites because you don't know where they're getting their information from. So that, that leads me to my next question, my next question, Dr. Powell. When a patient comes into your office with research from the internet, how do you help them disseminate through what's real and what's not and, and what's, you know, what, what's legitimate and what's just opinion from a patient who was, you know, improperly treated? Yeah, I think it's an opportunity for education in some respects. You know, it, it's a great chance for us to sort of sit down and say, look, there really are some trusted resources on the internet that you can rely upon, others that I would perhaps, you know, consider to be a little bit more dubious. And so we spend time sort of pointing them in the direction of websites of advocacy groups that I trust, KC Cure certainly being one of them. Um, you know, and, and I do think that reliance on the internet isn't always an unhealthy thing as long as it's directed in an appropriate fashion. We do often spend some time sifting through, you know, the pages and pages of materials that they come in with. Frankly, you know, these big stacks don't take that long to sift through. Um, and, uh, and I have to say that, you know, occasionally a bright idea will come of it. Dr. Master, any, any additional comments on that? Yeah, I think that's well said. I have to say that I think it's really the fairly recent time frame, at least in our own practice at Emory, where I absolutely direct patients to reputable sources like Casey Cures, um, and there are a relatively small fraction of other sources of reputable information. Sometimes it seems to me that patients and their family members want to have a conversation with people outside of their healthcare team as well who know a lot That's about true. their disease. And I am the first to say, please do it. You need to be able to ask questions and then if you don't have clear answers, you need to come back and talk to me as well. So I'm so appreciative of all the hard work that is being done by patient advocates because it makes patient care better. I will say, I think the number one place that you should send patients to, I'd, I'd love to tell you Casey here always, of course, but I really think patient communities, peer-to-peer -peer patient communities, are the best source of support for patients. It's where they hear from other patients, um, they can have their fears and anxieties validated, that they're not alone in going through this. I mean, they also learn about clinical trials. They learn about centers that they can go to. They learn about second opinions. It's one of the primary areas of focus that we do as an organization, which is we have multiple communities um, where we encourage patients to share their stories and engage with others. There's definitely material that gets shared that's, that's inaccurate. Uh, but you'd be surprised at the crowdsourcing that goes on and people will, they will shut something down that's not true. It's very quick, but um, I really think that's such a, it's such an excellent emotional support for patients um, to be able to connect with other people who are dealing with the same diagnosis, the same side effects, the same treatment decisions. No question about it. As a busy clinician, we're often looking for the first point of contact to send patients uh -huh. to, and then yeah. from that, they can be um, led to other communities, uh, groups, um, because I think that's incredibly important, what you just said, to make sure that there's a chance to deeply talk about fears, anxieties, hopes, 
aspirations mm -hmm. that outside of the clinical conversation right where we're looking at an incision or <laughs> or talking about the change in size of a lesion I really yeah. think when it comes to these these uh, groups online size really does matter you know I'll give mm -hmm. you an example I, I used to run a kidney cancer support group at City of Hope and I stopped doing it because we had you know reasonable turnout maybe five to fifteen folks would come out on a regular basis but the challenge that I saw is if I invited one of my stage one patients to come out to this meeting they would liken their condition to a, an advanced stage four patient mm -hmm. that I was treating and the vice versa often happened too. a stage four patient would go there thinking well gosh I just just saw this guy with localized disease who's doing exceptionally well. You know, that's my scenario. So it, it brought up issues. I, I feel like that might get quelled to some extent if you're having, you know, a sizable online platform where those sorts of expectations can be normalized. Yeah, I think when you have a large enough group, it really does. And I think for what it does for the stage one patient where they have a lot of anxiety, they see a stage four patient and they say, okay. First, they can see that their situation is better, mm -hmm. but they can also see, even if my disease were to recur, which is their number one fear, this is a person living with mm -hmm. this disease, and it shows them a path forward. And I think that when stage four patients can help stage one patients, it gives them a sense of purpose, and it makes them feel empowered that they can help support someone else who's going through something that's not as bad as they are, but that they can inspire them. Uh, we, for Kidney Cancer Awareness Month, we, we showcased a story, a patient's story, every single day of the month. And I was so amazed at, we had T1A patients and we had stage four patients. We had, um, we had people who had lost someone. They all came back and said, you have no idea what it meant to me to be able to share my story. And the people who read them said, reading this story made me feel not so alone. It's really, it's really a wonderful experience to see that, that kind of thing occur. That's very nice. <clears throat> so just to wrap up, uh, since we are running out of time, could you just give us a few key points to both medical oncologists and urologists as to what you feel the most important things that we need to address uh, as uh, we take care of our patients? Again, I would just echo, I would encourage more multidisciplinary clinics, um, more interaction, and um, working together more. I, I see it happening so much, so we should keep that trend going. Um, and really, I would just, I would say thank you for the work that you're doing for patients. It means so much to those of us in the advocacy community and for the patients. Um, we know how hard you're working for us, and we're grateful, so thank you. Excellent. Well, Dina, Dr. Paul, Dr. Master, thank you very much for your time today uh, discussing this very important topic.